So here we are again, guys. Another session of PhD This Podcast. I'm Liz. And I'm Zine. And we're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice. And we're excited to have a recurring guest, actually. Our listeners may remember Danielle Morgan, who uh, joined us um, last year, I guess, or earlier. Yeah, last year. Mm-hmm. Um, she's yep. now an assistant professor of English at Santa Clara University. And we're really excited to have her back on the show for Black History Month. Yay, oh, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me back. I'm really excited to, to be here with you guys. Yeah, a lot has transpired since... A lot has happened since we last talked to you. You're now a faculty member. You're now living in California, yes. which people claim is the best place to live in the U.S., although it's very dry. Right. Well, th- Pretty, but dry. Yeah. It's actually, uh, we've experienced, like, crazily um, torrential downpours recently, like in the past month. Um, so we're uh, yeah. in the bay where I am. It's uh, like we're out of the drought for, I think, the first time in maybe five or six years, something like that. Um, oh, wow. So it's it's yeah. been sort of uh, not at all what I, what I was told it was going to be like living in California. <laughs> but the sun is shining today and yeah. it's like 60 degrees, so I really can't complain. Yeah. Was it like two inches of rain or something like that? No, it was, I mean, it was really, um, it just rained and rained and rained. It felt like for, for weeks, for, uh, I mean, honestly, for about a month on and off, it just uh, was pretty substantial rain um, to the point that now we've had a, a good bit of like mudslides and um, was planning on going to Big Sur with a friend who came to town and it became a situation where it wasn't exactly safe um, parts of San Jose were actually evacuated because of flooding wow. and yeah um, just you know I, I suppose it w- was an amount of rain that in a place that usually experiences rain it would be sort of an annoyance but not um, you know mm-hmm. not terrible but but here because we aren't used to it it just sort of shut everything down right right, right. well we're glad that you're, well, glad that you're yes. safe or things are kind <laughs> of exactly. calming down hopefully no more big, no more big right, rains right. in the future. <laughs> the, world, the world 2017 already looks backwards, so let's having California have rain just adds exactly, more to it. Exactly. Yeah, of course. This, this is backwards this world. is what the new dystopia is, right? <laughs> but at least one good part about this. So, as our listeners may remember, Danielle is also part of what we think of as our sister podcast, Black Girl Magic. And I know that one of Danielle's resolutions for 2017 was to do more public humanities work. And so she's written quite a few things so far for Al Jazeera. And um, in particular, we wanted to get her on the show to talk to her about an amazing piece that she wrote about Black History Month that we will also link to. Um, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, and we, we love the piece so much. But maybe do you, uh, Danielle, do you want to give us an overview for the our listeners who haven't read it yet? Sure. Um, so basically, I wrote a piece um, about the necessity of Black History Month in the 21st century, um, as people are sort of hearkening to this post-racial mythology and saying, "Well, either on, on both sides, either we don't need Black History Month because racism is no longer mm-hmm. a thing, or the the uh, other side of that argument, which is that." That Black History Month is in and of itself a racist uh, idea because it's privileging <laughs> black people and that's just reverse racism. Um, so my argument uh, with, with uh, the article that I wrote is basically explaining the necessity for Black History Month that sort of giving the um, 
sort of saying, you know, I can understand why in a perfect world, perhaps Black History Month is not would not be necessary if Black History Month were actually incorporated into the traditional calendar. But because it's not, Mm -hmm. it becomes a useful space for um, particularly for young black children to learn about their history um, and to have their history centered in a way we don't experience um, in the other 11 months of the year, Uh, sort of comparing the idea Mm -hmm. of saying we don't need a Black History Month to uh, the rhetoric surrounding all lives matter, um, that certainly all lives matter, Mm -hmm. certainly all history matters in the United States, but um, we need a space in which we are saying Black Lives Matter. We need a space in which we're saying this is where we talk about Black History Month because these are the, these are the, um, ideas that are consistently marginalized and not um, examined uh, critically. Yeah, I, I really, I really like the article for kind of bringing out that point and making that comparison to the all lives matter, all history matters, um, and being able to highlight black history. And I also heard I was just wondering where I wanted to go with this, but um, I'm actually kind of curious on a personal level, how have you celebrated or honored Black History Month maybe as a kid and how has that changed as you went to university and actually now that you're a faculty, if it has at all? Absolutely. So when I was a little girl, my mom was uh, very, very... um, diligent in in and it, and it absolutely influenced my career trajectory and my personal and my personal life and my understanding of identity she was very very interested in my um, understanding who I was and not being ashamed of who I was and feeling a sense of not even just pride but just just a sense of certainty that my life mattered um, and so mm-hmm. even when I was young um, I, when I was in kindergarten, my mom sat me down to watch uh, the civil rights documentary, Eyes on the Prize, um, and that was, and you know, in retrospect, she and I have kind of laughed, and she's wondered, like, well, you know, I, I don't know if you were actually old enough to see all of that, but, <laughs> but it did, you know, create the situation in which I feel like I've always been really interested in this idea of black history as being valid and significant and and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the claims that people often make is, well, black history just they black people haven't done as much cool stuff as white people in America, you know, like this kind of, which I, yeah. So it's, it's shocking to hear it, but I, I guess if you don't know black history, you might, you might fall under the conception that this isn't being talked about because it's not worth being talked about as opposed to this isn't being discussed because there are racist uh, forces that are preventing us from talking about it. I've always known that black history was something worth examining and and worth um, our consideration in those kinds of ways. So I just, I it's always been something, even outside of the the frame of Black History Month, um, it's been something that, that mattered to me a lot. Um, and I've been fortunate, I think, in my professional life to be able to sort of always have situations in which I've been able to kind of um, talk about black history or or work in Mm -hmm. organizations that have allowed me uh, to do so. Like right now um, at Santa Clara, I'm teaching an intro to African-American literature course. So it, you know, played right in without my having to really set 
time mm -hmm. aside, um, in my CTW course, I've made a conscious effort to, you know, have them read some short stories by Percival Everett this month and talk about the way um, he's understanding race within the concept of uh, post-raciality. The CTWs at Santa Clara are uh, very briefly kind of like a um, freshman writing and thinking uh, seminar mm -hmm. that all freshmen... Yeah, what does CTW stand uh, for? Critical thinking and writing. Um, okay. So they, they take okay. it two quarters, so I have the same students for two quarters, um, which is really exciting because I get to see these first-year students sort of grow and evolve over mm -hmm. the over the um, that two-quarter system. So I've gotten the, the chance, even in this sort of broader realm, to talk to them about um, some contemporary issues and make that seem relevant and resonant to them. Um, and then with my own, you know, in my own family, with my daughter, um, I was, you know, able to go to her preschool and read um, Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters to her oh students. Gosh, awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to, to her classmates <laughs> and, and kind of make sure that she understands who she is and where she came from and that it becomes normalized for, for um, her classmates and for the sort of diverse array um, ethnically and, you know, uh, on mm. the level of class and all of these different kinds of diversity that she's got in there in her classroom that they get to, um, that it's important to make it not seem alien and not seem strange, uh, even at a young age. And um, so I think that's sort of been, because my mother, it mattered so much, right? When I'm thinking of my family, I felt like it was easier to celebrate. And when I went to university, it felt more of like, hey, I need to tell you it's important. Right. In addition to, like, let's actually celebrate these right, things. Right, right. Like, it, it became harder. And then trying to, how to do that without, um, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm really picking, trying to find the right words, but how to do that and not make, make people angry. Absolutely. Although maybe you can't make people angry, and I think you're also seeing that through some of your public humanities work with the articles you're writing. Right. Mm -hmm. <sighs> you can't avoid trolls or the anger that comes from making sentences that form paragraphs, <laughs> that form essays. Right, yeah. And I remember, Danielle, you posted um, a bit about some of the pushback you got, I think, on the various pieces you've written from Al Jazeera, calling you a witch or something ridiculous yeah, like that. Yeah, lots mm -hmm. of um, really sort of these um, shocking, uh, shockingly specific ad hominem attacks um, <laughs> where people have, have determined. And, it, and it's so interesting because the first piece I wrote was about Barack Obama and his and his lack mm -hmm. of connection to Black Lives Matter, and mm -hmm. I was so tense and nervous writing that piece because, as I said in the piece, I love Obama, but I do find there to have been some flaws with his handling of all of that. And then I was worried that the piece came across too middle of the road, that it wasn't going to um, do what I was trying to have it do because it was just it 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 played too much. It was too. Not even that it was too nuanced. It was too Barack Obama. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so, it's a pun if you really think right, about it. Right, right. So, so to have people push back and say, oh, she's just obsessed with Obama or, you know, or like, oh, she just mm -hmm. loves him because he's black and she's, you know, she's a crazy witch or she's rabid and all of these things. And I kept thinking, but it was so passive. <laughs> I didn't take, I intentionally right. didn't take a hard stance because it, it's, too difficult to do that w with the benefit of hindsight right now. Um, so one thing that right. the pushback has let me um, learn is that it's something I really can't pay that kind of attention to because 
people are clearly not reading the, the things that I'm writing and they're reading the headlines and saying, oh, well, this is mm. a black person who's written mm-hmm. about Obama, so I'm just going to attack her. Or this is a woman who's written a thing, so I'm going to attack her, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so it's that aspect of it has, has made me feel, when I wrote the Black History Month, article, I felt like I could take more risks and more challenge and, and sort of challenge myself because I realized, well, they're, they're going to be critical regardless. I may as mm-hmm, well really mm-hmm. um, be yeah. more overt. In and I'm curious whether Ta-Nehisi Coates got the similar kind of pushback when he had his article about Barack Obama, which I actually think was more um, like, no, <laughs> you, you failed us, I think. Right. That's interesting. Different positions, of course, but hmm. Um, so what made you want to write about Black History Month? Well, one of the things, uh, that made me really interested in the subject is just because it's one of those things that, um, I guess whenever I think about Black History Month, it's so tied to my childhood. And I think it, it goes back, um, in a lot of ways, Liz, to what you were saying about how, um, it was easier in some regards when you're little to celebrate Black History Month, and then as you get older, mm-hmm. um, you're almost worried that there's going to be this heavy pushback, or you you want to talk about it, but mm-hmm. you don't want anybody to get angry about it. You don't want people to say you're the real racist. You know, you don't mm-hmm. want all of these kinds of yeah. um, ridiculous <laughs> statements that are going to be waged against you. And then, uh, so I started to think, well, why is this such a fraught, you know, symbolic move when it really is in a lot of ways kind of this it's treated as this token gesture no one's doing anything with it as an adult in that kind of way I mean you might have you know your friend on social media who posts a uh, photo of a famous black person every day for the month of February or you might have you know but Mm -hmm. it's not it's not like your work life is changing it's not like you have any I mean you maybe have a black history month celebration or they bring a black minister in and he like prays or something you know it's but it's not anything that yeah. like changes anything um and so i started to think well why are people so angry if all of our memories if if our uh, strongest memories about black history month take us back to our childhood and then i began to think well is this really about child black childhood joy is there something about black childhood joy that is threatening to people or that feels um Mm. you know it's it's this idea that you know in this country in the united states we view the child as this sacred figure um until it's a child of of color um Mm -hmm. and then they're Mm -hmm. not afforded Mm -hmm. those kinds of um joyous spaces and opportunities and things like that and so i just i really felt the more I thought about it, I felt like I needed to, to say something about about that idea. Yeah, and I was thinking of bringing into our conversation, since we're recording this near the end of Black History Month, that this has also been a momentous uh, um, month for, for many things. Like, we had the Grammys, we're having the Oscars coming up tomorrow at the time of this recording. Mm-hmm. Um, this could be an unprecedented um success for like um movies like moonlight and hidden figures and of course we had uh beyonce's and amazing hidden performance. yep, yep. <laughs> hidden figures yay um yeah what do you guys think about that like so just not thinking about black history month as an institution but like this particular black history month and reflecting back on what's happened in february this year 
Well, first, I think we have to um, uh, recognize the Beyonce Illuminati and say that she intentionally chose February 1st to acknowledge, to announce that she was giving birth oh, to yes. twins. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, to start Black History Month. Now, I don't know if she really thought, like, okay, I'm going to start Black History Month by giving, like, all the black people out here a gift of, like, letting them know I'm delivering not one but two Beyonce's. Um, like, I don't think about it that deeply, and I actually kind of, I try not to, uh, deitize her, if that's a word. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But, but I think we should start with that, because that clearly has, it made a ripple effect through, like, my online social community that people really pay attention to, mm-hmm. and I, in hindsight, I, I kind of um, appreciate how she, um, and her performances in the Grammys, like really like honoring her body and pregnancy, because it's one of the first times I really thought about how uh, black motherhood isn't as acknowledged. It's not as sacred. It feels like that. Like I just remember, uh, and it was really subtle how I recognize. I was thinking about this. It was a Friday night. I was at a bar somewhere, and um, like a upscale kind of bar, and I saw a pregnant lady walk through a white lady and I thought about how like if that had been a black woman walking into a bar like so visibly pregnant I don't know if she would have been as well accepted she would have been like a bad person you Mm -hmm. know what I mean Mm -hmm. and just thinking about like what happens to your body when you are pregnant and like what happens when you put race on that and like how are they viewed and how are they protected who gets seen as a mother who's like careful and like you know worthy and like doing a beautiful noble thing and just thinking about black motherhood I've never had a child but I just just thinking about the women that I've seen and kind of how they walk through life so I know that's random Mm -hmm. (laughs) in regards to Beyonce but no I think that's a a great point um especially when you consider the the sort of uh specific kinds of of uh vitriol and uh, pushback she received for her performance and mm-hmm. this idea that she's mm-hmm. commodifying her pregnancy when um, I mean white actresses and singers have always have to, I mean certainly in the contemporary era that's um, nothing mm-hmm. surprising I, I don't feel like Demi Moore got that kind of pushback yeah. Um, yeah. at all when she was on the cover of the mag uh, of, of Vogue I think it was um, Mm-hmm. But but yeah, this this way that like these racialized bodies become so um, frequently this site for um, anger, and that it, once again it's this this idea of the body as a sacred space that black mm-hmm. bodies are never afforded. Um, so I was I was so impressed that Beyonce was was willing to put her body out there and was willing to right. claim the space for it. Um, and, and honestly, just as somebody who, you know, I, I, you know, had a daughter, so, you know, I, I remember what it was like to be pregnant and to, you know, I certainly didn't look like Beyonce when I was pregnant, but, you know, this, this kind of idea, at least, that, like, right. you feel sort of awkward and you don't feel like your body is exactly yours at that point because it looks so physically different and, you know, mm-hmm. and that she was proudly standing up there and saying this is still my body and it's still mm-hmm. beautiful like it it that mm-hmm. meant something to me and to see a black woman do that I mean I I just mm-hmm. I really found it to be powerful and then the three generations to have Miss Tina there and to have Blue yeah. Ivy with her 
um, it was just I, I it w it really was sort of this powerful black womanhood on display. It was. It really was. It touched my yeah. heart. <laughs> so that was a great way to start um, Black History Month, I think. Trump's tweets are also a great way to start. Pence Black History Month was amazing. I got my life from those tweets. <laughs> Do you remember the, the Pence Black hashtag, Pence Black History Facts? It was something like that. Ooh, it just, no. Frederick Douglass oh is still God. alive and yeah. that sort of thing. No, no, no. He, no, no. Pence thanked Abraham Lincoln for freeing the slaves. Oh, yes. Like, yes. in honor of Black History Month, let's thank Abraham Lincoln oh, who freed yeah. the slaves. Donald Trump was the one who said, who phrased things as if Donald Frederick Douglass was still alive and getting more and more credit. But I just, and I mean, this might be really relevant for you, Danielle, but I really liked the, the humor that got inserted to this, the way in which people take a kind of painful moment or like what kind of offensive or whatever words you want to attach to it and make it funny right. and then like make give it a life of its own and kind of riff off of it in a way that is dependent um, like it has an origin but then what it became was something completely different right, right. so I'm, I'm all I'm here all for that mm -hmm. <laughs> I really liked it so I do but I don't Wait, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say that. Do you guys have any Oscar predictions for tomorrow? Um, because especially this is what the year after the hashtag Oscar is so white. And, right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is like them, the county trying to make up for it in some ways. But as people are pointing out, like just one one year does not make a, a real difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Daniel? Um. So I have to confess, I have not seen a lot of the Oscar movie because I have a <laughs> small child. I don't get to go to the movies as, as often. I did see Moana, so I can speak to that. But there's very and little else. You're on your tenure track, like that's some serious. Right. Yeah. Business. Well, exactly. And I did see Fences. I saw I saw Fences and thought that was mm. fantastic. I still haven't seen Hidden Figures yet. Um, I was supposed mm -hmm. to see Mo Moonlight recently, and then what ended up at the very last minute being unable to go. So. Um, but what, what I will say is, and I haven't seen La La Land um, at all, um, so I am, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen. Um, and it, yeah, it is a hard situation, I think, um, as you brought up, Zion, just that one, you know, one more diverse year at the Academy Awards does not make up for, doesn't, it doesn't make up for anything, and it doesn't indicate that that that's actually a trend that's going to take place. It could just be, I mean, we have a year where, you know, Denzel Washington is nominated and Viola Davis is nominated, and those are people who should probably win awards also. Um, mm -hmm. that, I mean, because not, not just because they're so great in these roles, but because of the sort of um, archive of their material, um, that, that mm -hmm. they, they are kind of always... Uh, deserving and and um, so I, I don't I don't I'm not sure what's going to happen I'm, I'm similarly interested to see if Lin-Manuel Miranda is going to win the Oscar because he'll be mm. an EGOT at that point in the youngest oh, ever wow, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm really interested to see if that's going to happen I keep going back and forth what is Oscar is he up for um, he's up for um, best song with um, How Far I'll Go from Moana. 
So I it'll. Know. I don't know. This. It's. I mean, it's a. Yeah, it plays constantly in my <laughs> in my house. So I'm partial <laughs> to the song certainly. Um, okay, I'll look it up. Yeah, it's it's a cute song and it's it's well done um, and it's very different from uh, sort of. I mean, it's it's the same. It's the same formula as most of those sort of Disney ballads where it's, you know, a young woman singing a song about long... Oh, okay, like okay, that. okay. I didn't know he did that. I haven't seen that movie yet. Okay, now the, the Disney yes, movie. Yes, that's yes. why you've seen it if you're yeah, daughter, sorry. probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's the only reason I saw it is because my daughter okay, wanted to see make it. it. It's clicking. But no, it's, I mean, and it's, and it's great and it's beautiful and he, I think he did a really great job with that album and deserves it, but I could also see people... Um, being resistant to giving it to him because he wins everything and because he's so young, um, but but he's also such a I, I think he's such a fan favorite that it would also it makes the Oscars mm. look good for for him to win and he does deserve it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I'm inter I'm definitely interested in that. I also uh, just personally really want Viola Davis to win because um, she made me cry in Fences um, and it was just it was fantastic. That, I'm too afraid to watch Fences for that it's reason. It's so good. I, I so avoid fun. dramas because yeah. and I know she's just going to give you like one of those Viola right. moments and Denzel's going to perform and I'm like I'm not ready for this. Yeah I it's I mean it is uh, heart-wrenching and I mean August Wilson's plays are always incredible but they just I mean it was it, it it was just perfect. I, I can't even describe how, how much I liked Fences. Mm -hmm. So Okay, yeah. I, I have no... I haven't seen them. I haven't seen Moonlight. I think it, it's not in theaters right now. Like, it, it wasn't... They weren't in theaters close to me, so I'm going to watch it when it comes out in another legal fashion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have seen Hidden Figures twice, and... Um, I'm not really following the Oscars. I don't really have a lot of comments on that. I had a lot of comments about the Grammys, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that one I was kind of like following and then just having some ripple effects with other people. Um, um, but yeah, I guess I will be excited to see if Lynn Manuel Miranda wins. That would be really exciting. Oh, sorry. I was going to say that about both okay. awards show. There was a meme that I saw that I really related to, which is like something like, oh, when a POC doesn't win. Oh, well, this this is all trash and we know it's all contrived. Mm. POC wins. Yes! <laughs> and it's like, I, that is sort of like how we feel. Like, we know that it's like a rigged system, but like when we... when Unless it's Meryl Streep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I saw that. And actually... I forget what the hashtag was, but apparently some people were predicting, like, watch, if Adele wins, everyone's going to be upset that Beyonce didn't win. Like, mm -hmm. before the Grammys even happened, and I'm sure that was predictable. In many ways, it was predictable that Adele would win. She is, like, the only person who can sell physical albums and digital alike. Like, nobody can do that. And I do think that in ways that don't necessarily undermine her talent, but are related to her whiteness, mm -hmm. that she's mm -hmm. able to sell that because of the audience that she has. And there were ways in which I felt like Beyonce not winning was also in a, because she chose to highlight black women and really kind of put that at the forefront. It was not only saying that her work wasn't valuable, but her audience, the people who consume her work is not as valuable as the people who consume Adele's work. So that was that was kind of interesting, and then I've always had concerns about um, this urban R and B category, urban contemporary R and B, and how they keep putting 
what does that mean and how people keep putting people in this category that maybe shouldn't be there um people who probably should be in the pop category but now urban just means black and so even if even if artists are doing things that are genre stretching they will still put them in the cat urban category and i think we are talking about the final thing I'll say is we talk a lot about Beyonce losing, what that means for her as to be such a great artist and be so highly revered and her work to be truly pioneering in some ways to still not have an album of the year award while Taylor Swift and Adele have two. Um, and the last black woman to win album of the year was 1999 with Lauren Hill. Um, I think about the fact that there are also other unsung heroes like Rihanna did not win any any Grammys, right? Work was an amazing song, mm-hmm. probably had more lasting impact than Hello did. Her album was actually pretty inspiring, but it, I almost feel like there's this, like this, because you put Beyonce in a cate- urban category, and that was, and you, Rihanna was in this category, and it's like, obviously you're not going to choose Rihanna over Beyonce, right? And then you only allow one black woman to shine at a time. It's almost what it felt like it was saying. You can only have one person. Um, and then, you know, it'd be easy to say like, oh, let's just hate Beyonce because she's the one, she gets awards, at least she gets awards. And it's, and it's, so it becomes like this internal debate almost where really it's like you're screwing both of them over, you know. And it's just interesting because Rihanna was also, does a lot of work and has like, I don't know, some record for like the most number one or top ten hits. She's actually pretty prolific, both on the charts both financially, in terms of fashion and social media, and just, I think, kind of caught in these worlds that only allow one person to shine, and then even that person can't shine. Mm -hmm. And, like, what does that really mean? And I loved your attitude about that. Coming with a flask, telling her girlfriend, like, I think it's time for another shot. Like, she knows (laughs) what's up. Yeah, and I feel just like... I, 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 I loved what you said about saying that Beyonce's audience didn't um, count as much as Adele's audience because that was the sense that I got when if something like Lemonade didn't win, I felt like it was very much that sense of um, the experience she's discussing here is not an actual experience <laughs> that that this is something that's mm-hmm. niche um, and something that you know doesn't doesn't count um, because it wasn't made specifically for me. Um, it's this same mm-hmm. sense. I had a friend who was telling me um, a white male friend, in fact, who was <laughs> telling me that he just didn't get Solange, and I I was mm-hmm. like, well, you know, maybe then that that indicates that her music isn't made for you and like you should you can be okay with that too um Mm -hmm. it's it's (laughs) you can't just undercut Solange and say oh I don't really get her as an artist and I don't you know I don't see why she's famous because there's a huge swath of people who do understand why she's famous Mm -hmm. and where her work matters to them um and and it's this weird sort of sense of within the mainstream if this black artist is making music for black people that I don't feel I can quantify in a certain way or that makes me feel culpable in some way, like a song like um, it's Formation uh, where she's using this sort mm-hmm. of black radical imagery or um, you know, a song for Solange, something like Don't Touch My Hair, where it's very specifically like mm-hmm. this is a black experience, I'm talking mm-hmm. to black women. 
um, yeah. then it's easy to sort of write it all off and say, oh, it's not, it's not legitimate music like this other more easily right. commodified or quantified thing is. And I really, I really think it's unfortunate because Beyonce, the Lemonade album, I think it's a breakup album for people. It's a mature relationship album. I think any woman in power would understand this because a lot of albums that deal with like heart breakup or like affairs, it's like they did me wrong and I'm going to diss them and like never talk to them ever again in my life. And I think that that's not how real life is. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. quite often, like, you have relationships or you have... It made me, in some ways, think of Hillary Clinton. It made me think of people who were in power and they love this person. Something happened. I My pride is at stake. My professional life's at stake. But I also still love you. And I am trying to hold on to those things. It just felt like, in a way, very real to me that a lot of women could actually relate to. And it felt like, again, more mature because when I think about it, like if you teenagers or early 20s or whatever, you're like, oh, I don't care about that guy. I'm going to leave them alone forever. But get kids, get married, actually love someone and then tell me how you're going to actually respond when something happens. Right, right. And Beyonce's album to me spoke to that level of womanhood that I think in the genre of this kind of breakup um, man did me wrong kind of phenomena, I felt like it was quite universal and I, I I find it a pity that there may be some people who could actually benefit from listening to this music at a point in their lives because mm-hmm. I it happens to everyone at right. some point and they're not really getting the advantage of actually having a song you know fine you go go deal Taylor Swift when you get upset about a boy or a man but see how much it heals your soul in comparison to getting something that actually says it's okay to forgive it's okay. Like, there's a way to maintain yourself and the relationship. Like, there's a way to mend fences and still have your yourself. That's what the album was for me. Like, I wish I had this album a while ago, right, but it was. Right. It was to me that I was like, that's what it meant to me. And it's interesting because it really makes people feel things. There are people I know who, like, they love the first part of the album because it's all angry and vengeful. And the second part of the album, they're like, I just don't understand it. I've never loved someone like that to right. truly understand it. And it's it's just interesting, like, to have that conversation because it, for people, it's like, I've never loved someone that much. And then for me, it's like, I have absolutely loved someone so much, I might have given my soul for them. And I understand what she's saying. And it was like, it felt great because so often as strong women or women who are, like, trying to be in control of themselves you get told that you aren't allowed to have feelings you aren't allowed like if you do something if someone hurts you you're supposed to never forgive them you're supposed to like be more harsh or whatever i think what i'm trying to say and so it almost like permission permission to forgive but also a way for men to also understand i'm talking about heterosexual relationships at the moment but and it could probably extend but i'm just kind of sticking with myself here a way for men to say, like, yeah, if I submit myself, there's also a path back to this as well, possibly. Not that I even know what happened, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it was just, I, yeah, I, I mean, we could talk about Lemonade for, for forever. <laughs> forever. <laughs> and how it influenced all of us, but it was just, God. it was so beautiful to see this Sasha Fierce woman who's sort of like the mm-hmm. ideal 
um, of like what, you know, this woman who, you know, seems to have it all and, you know, that she's so strong and simultaneously so vulnerable and like mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. see a black woman who could perform both of those things at the same time. Like, I feel like Janet Jackson sort of did some similar, ha- had some sort of mm. similar impulses. And Velvet Rope? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but I was too young for that one. <laughs> well, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember when that came out, and, like, it, it was that same sort of sense of like um I don't know like like this kind of like I'm soft but I'm also powerful and then Beyonce took this idea of I'm soft and I'm powerful into like not only am I soft but there's like a real um vulnerability that's identifiable that that you know we're often Mm -hmm. told is almost shameful like this idea that whether the narrative Mm -hmm. was true or not that this idea of a woman staying um that that was vulnerable, but it was also incredibly strong at the same time that this was sort of this big picture kind of, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. There was just something about it that, that I found really um, just beautifully wrought and then in, in some regards revolutionary in, its, in the way it showed this dynamic portrait of black womanhood and then black women. It, it, yeah, it was just amazing. Mm-hmm. And I love Adele um, and I liked... 25 but that's not even that's not even Adele's best album <laughs> so I I was mm-hmm. just I found that sort of I don't know I I thought I it troubled me um in that regard and and I appreciated Adele at least sort of acknowledging the speech she was you troubled mean? by it too yeah did you have any thoughts of her speech some people seem to take offense to her saying my black friends right. felt a certain way the album made my black friends feel a certain way i was like thank oh, you for right. acknowledging <laughs> black people in your speech but I don't, what did you feel about it well i had the same so initially when i heard it i was like black friends <laughs> that's weird um and i think it was uh-huh. maybe ineloquently phrased but but i agree like i f- i felt like it was actually really uh, right for her to say it that way and I don't know how else she could have said it but I, I appreciated that she made the difference that it or made the distinction that it made a difference to her in one regard but that she also understood that it was written for black women and that it had a different mm-hmm. kind of impact on the black women that she knows because that is important it I because I also think if she had just said oh what it what this album did for me and how it made me feel and blah 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 then she would have gotten the pushback about oh well what is this white British woman you know why does she think lemonade was made for her this is just another example of Adele's appropriation of black culture Mm -hmm. you know like there there really wasn't a way for her to win um and I think that Mm -mm. that she was right to say that, that it that it had a different impact on black women because for many of us it did would you say that perhaps the what Adele did um, in some ways models the relationship that uh, uh, white and non-black people of color should have to Black History Month, perhaps? Like, like what sort of relationship should non-black people have? I, wow, that's a really, that's a hard question and, and a really good question. Um, you can answer that one, Danielle. It's all yours. <laughs> um, oh, man. I, I mean, I think in some, in some ways, yes, it, it, because it was that 
um, way that she decentered herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she, um, yeah, I mean, I think because she used it as this sort of <laughs> gesture to to clear space for black women, I think the only thing she could have done that might have been more powerful is one, if she had actually given, after she said she couldn't accept it, if she had actually given it to Beyonce. And granted, she like split it in half later on, um, which I thought was a, was a nice mm-hmm. gesture as well. Um, but if she had given Beyonce the opportunity to, to speak on her stage might have been mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. even more of, or of that kind of um, relationship of, of what we um, sort of mm-hmm. imagine when we talk about allyship uh, within those kinds of spaces. Yeah, I felt more harshly. I felt like, no, if you really won't, if you really don't want this award, then literally ask them to redact your mm. name. <laughs> Say that no one won the award for 2017. You know, like, because the thing is, she still doesn't lose anything. Everyone knows she won. But by actually saying, like, I don't acknowledge 2017 for album of the year, like, that's a commitment. That's actually saying, no. And I didn't get this. Yeah. This didn't That's happen. a really so put good your point. on the yeah. line. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and she's somebody who who can put it on the line because I mean, she's she's Adele. Like she she she's sells got, albums. Yeah, she's got she's got that sort of power and she's got that presence now that she. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that, but that I yeah I I changed my answer to Liz's because I think that <laughs> that would have been a really really nice um, <laughs> gesture because yeah, and again, like you said, everyone would still know, and you know when you look it up. You know, 20 years later on Wikipedia, it would say, you know, Adele won, but, you know, redacted her name in favor of Beyonce. And that yeah. would have It'd be offered... more epic or more right, historical. Right, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone, they both yeah. would have won in that situation, I mm-hmm. think. Or just make a commitment to saying, like, Beyonce was the album of the year, not the artist of right. my life. that's a good point, yeah. And then... I mean, she's golden. I Even she doesn't understand why she's this golden. You know what I mean? Like, it's not about the fact that she's not talented. She is. But if you look at the trend from selling albums, and that's 19, in the 90s, um, an artist could sell, like, 14 million, and that was, like, you were okay, but not the best. Like, maybe 30 million would be great, right? And then, like, by the 2000s, those numbers were dwindling, um, and Adele came out and just sold like 15 million. Everyone else said so like a, a, a million tops. And now people can even barely get a million streams. You know, like like 400,000 is not what you sell in the first week. That's what you sold overall. And she's still selling. And that's, again, like she does nothing for it. She does absolutely nothing for it. She, she I'm actually a little salty about this because she... <laughs> This is like the second award show that she's literally like screwed it up and like, oh, I, ha- I want to repeat this. Like the second one that she's either been off pitch or did a horrible job. Nobody cares. All right. And she just doesn't I'm like, really, you don't do performances. You go AWOL for like four or five years and you just come out actually taking um, Beyonce's lead, just doing like a sudden release, right? Mm-hmm. A surprise mm-hmm. release which nobody was really truly doing until Beyonce, Mm -hmm. 2014, 2015. Um, And, yeah, she's still like, oh, my God, she's so cool. She was so deferential. At least least she's easier to like, but it's still, I did feel like it felt like 
the people that she chose to, to show in her music was not valuable. Because Beyonce could have made any album. She could have done anything with her music and her visuals. I don't know. But anyway, it's kind of interesting. And I feel, diff I feel, um, I struggle with this because somehow talking about Beyonce means that you're a Beyonce stan. Right. right. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's, there's never any middle ground to just kind of acknowledge like, okay, but she's, you know, we know she's the best, right? At performing. Um, we know that she works really hard and that like, I don't think anything she's done is undeserved, but somehow there's no middle ground. Um, and I think the same goes for like, if you don't like Beyonce, I know plenty of people who just don't care for Beyonce. Zion, I think you don't like Beyonce that much or you don't listen to her music that much, but that's fine. I just, I kind of wish that talking about her wasn't so wrought with like such intense emotions that quite often don't have as much to do with the music because a lot of people that I know who don't like her haven't even heard wow, her albums. Really? Wow. Like the, like the most outwardly vicious ones about it. It's like you're mad at your ex, even though you're married to somebody else. Like, why are you? Why are you so upset about this? What? Are you not? What happened? You didn't even. You weren't even interested in me. So why are you like upset right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway. On the flip side, I thought it was funny when um, our friend Chanda, our listeners may remember, it's a brilliant athletist. Uh -huh. She came out and was like. Um, of course, was very critical of the whole Adele Beyonce thing, but also was like, actually, uh -huh. I think Auntie is better than Lemonade. And she's like, I know that I should be afraid right now of the Beehive, uh -huh. but Beehive, but yeah, yeah, that, that was also an interesting moment. Yeah, yeah, it depends on um, which experience speaks to you. I actually like Rihanna. Rihanna speaks to me actually, um, more so now <laughs> as a single woman. She speaks to me. Um, I really admire her and I kind of always have since 2009. I just feel like I just like her a lot um, and I wish her the best. Yeah, I used to feel very strongly that I couldn't like Rihanna because I loved Beyonce so much, but now, like, <laughs> really? yeah, I just, I felt like, they were, like the re their relationship seemed very fraught, and so I needed to choose sides or something, mm. as though either <laughs> of them, you know, cared, <laughs> but, um, right. but in the past, I would say, um, gosh, at, the, at this point, like five years, as, as I've thought about things more critically, I was like, no, there can be space in my heart for both of these incredible black performers. Like, mm, I, yeah. I like them both. Um, I mean, Beyonce is still my favorite just because I was younger when Beyonce, Beyonce is not that much older than me. Um, and so I, I feel mm -hmm. a kinship to her in that kind of way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think they both, they both sort of represent these different experiences. And sometimes when you're mm -hmm. getting dressed, you want to listen to Rihanna. And sometimes when you're getting dressed, you want to listen to Beyonce. And I'm glad mm -hmm. that I'm glad that I have both of those, those options. Yeah. Yeah. I've always felt the comparisons weird because they're not even the same lane. They don't do the same kind of music, but, but I think I can understand why people might make those comparisons. I like her and I'm happy that she's kind of come to, into her own. Um, and as a side note, I was actually really upset um, when she won the MTV Video Vanguard Award. And all people talked about was like Drake's 
declaring his yes. love to her and oh, i was like yes. yeah, is this yeah. not the one person who gave his bitch better have my money right like where she literally has a knife to a man is this not the same rihanna that's given us all these videos that we love and we're talking about drake right, right now mm-hmm. like really can we acknowledge that we are just debasing her, like demeaning her entire accomplishment because a guy declared his interest in her publicly? Exactly. And I, I was so angry at Drake for doing that because I just kept thinking, like, exactly. how dare you? How dare you take <laughs> away from her moment by making this, like, hey, you've done all of these great things, but the real prize is <laughs> that I'm about to oh, declare God. my love for you. Like, it, it just Team light skin, so man. Silly. Team light skin. I mean, it was just... Zion, get your people. Get your Canadian people. <laughs> yeah, Zion, this is, this is on you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, 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 yeah, I'm let's blame Zion for all of this. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> God. As a representative, yeah. Drake, this falls on me. <laughs> yeah. But no, I think I'm definitely your... I like Rihanna. I really do. They speak to me at different times, right. and I'm just kind of happy to have those people out there, yes. and I hope that they have their own lives in some way that's happy. Mm-hmm. That's really what I want. And, yeah, we'll be talking about this decades later. Like, I think sometimes about Michael Jackson and how people who are alive for Michael Jackson's rise – and I think about the way that's viewed in history. Like now we think of him as the greatest. And I'm obviously not trying to talk about his scandals, but um, musically, the king. And I think that, you know, in 10, 20 years, we'll be looking at some of these Beyonce songs and going like, those are amazing. Mm-hmm. Those are the hits. Like the way we think of the 90s now, I think of the 90s R&B is going to be how we right, think of right. this. And yeah. I hope. <laughs> My household will, let's put it that way. <laughs> so, do you have any closing thoughts? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I didn't know there'd be more questions. Um, uh, just one more. Well, I, I, first of all, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to talk with both of you. I miss you both. <laughs> I, oh. I, I love California, but um, I, I definitely miss the the. Cornell connections um, and things like that uh, for certain, mm-hmm. but I mean, you guys aren't even there anymore, so it doesn't. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't We're matter. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, I think I think my big closing uh, thought as, in reference to Black History Month is just um, that it really is. I I cannot uh, say enough how important it is that we still have this this space to talk about black people and, and black, um, and to talk about black history. Um, I, I hate sometimes when people sort of essentialize children and, or sort of make them into like, you know, I, the whole, I believe the children are our future kind of like, let's, you know, oh, won't someone please think about the children kind mm-hmm. of thing. But, mm-hmm. but it is really important for us to talk to our, our children since I work with, you know, young adults, um, it's interesting to mm-hmm. me what they do and what they don't know. Um, the number of, of my students who were not familiar with Emmett Till uh, when that came up mm-hmm. in conversation right. oh, uh, was gosh. really surprising to me. Um, and it's, it is a privilege for me to be able to be the person to expose them to that in some regards. Um, but I also mm-hmm. wish I didn't have to be the one um, who exposed yeah, them to right. that either. It, it always feels like this strange moment where it like crystallizes for young people that racism 
is real and it was deadly, um, it, you know, that, that it was deadly for him and that it can be a, a deadly thing. Um, so yeah, just this idea that, that the younger we can talk to people about the, uh, be the beautiful struggle, I guess, of, of black history, um, I, I think the better. I agree. And it's possible for me getting non-black people to also understand this value early on. Mm -hmm. Right. So that it becomes easier to celebrate. Zine, oh Canadian, oh bestie. What? Do you have any closing thoughts? Do I thoughts? have any, do, do, I, do I have any closing thoughts? Oh, wear of red um, lipstick, yeah. Well, I think that um, as a non-black person of color, I think Black History Month has always been really important, but the extent to which I understood it, of course, has, has evolved over time. But one of the things that always stayed with me as a child was my mom is actually the one who introduced me to the phrase black is beautiful um, when I was very little. And I told her about this like last year and she's like, she was very amused that I even remembered that at all. But I think that Aww. just being exposed to that as a child did a long way in terms of planting the seeds of of compassion and being able to decenter myself and better understanding like that things I'm still trying to work towards but these are things you can say to children or teach to people very early on and it's interesting how these things just stay with you yeah yeah I like that black is beautiful <laughs> Yeah. I think I'm going to just um, download Lift Every Voice and Sing finally and just kind of play it for these last two weeks. It's, it's one of my favorite songs in honor. And um, hopefully I can do some service to let people know, black people, and what they've really done and let students know about their own history. I know how beneficial that was for me. Thank you, Danielle, for so much mm -hmm. for being on oh, the show. thank you, guys. It's it was amazing. Fantastic. We still need to keep talking. I want to hear about how your first year as a professor was, actually. So much to catch yeah. up on. And we have to talk with the whole Black Girl Magic podcast. Yes, yes. definitely. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, well, if that's it, this is the PhD This Podcast. Again, I'm Liz. And I'm Zine. And also Liz is looking fabulous because she's about to run off to some event or something like that. And yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed the Black History Month. <laughs> yes. Yep. See you next time. Bye.